Welcome to Better by Great Place to Work, the podcast that helps companies create a great workplace for all because it's better for people, better for business, and better for the world. I'm Christopher Tkachuk, the Chief Content Officer at Great Place to Work. Each week, we meet with great leaders who have helped their companies become better workplaces by focusing on their best asset, their people, who in turn help their organizations become more successful. Support for Better comes from DHL Express, the global market leader in international express delivery. Welcome to Better by Great Place to Work. We're coming to you from the 2020 Great Place to Work for All Summit in San Francisco. We're joined today by Professor Robert Reich, who's the Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome, Professor. Uh, Thank you, Christopher. Professor Reich had also served as Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration and has written 18 books. The next one is coming out in a few weeks. It's called The System and... What's the, I'm sorry, the subtitle? Oh, the subtitle is uh, Who Rigged It and How We Fix It. Rigged what? The system. The system. Excellent. So you're going to cover everything, politics, the economy. Well, you can't cover politics without covering economics. You can't cover economics without covering law and the workplace Mm -hmm. and business and a lot of other things. It's a short book, believe it or not, but uh, it does attempt to provide a very different view Uh, a very different framework for people about what has happened and why Mm. and where the future is heading. Oh, interesting. I can't wait to read it. Now, among the many books that you've written, one of the most recent ones is The Common Good, for which you run a blog, and you provide commentary on what's going on in the world and politics and, you know, the administration and whatnot. How did we get to the point where we have a demagogue as president? (laughs) That's a very, very, very big question. I, I think that for 40 years... The median wage has not increased. And so when you have wages stagnant for that long a time, and simultaneously jobs have become less and less stable and less secure, uh, people get very anxious. They get very worried. And that creates a climate that is ripe for demagogues on the left or the right or wherever coming along and channeling that anxiety into anger toward various groups. Uh, This is not the first time in history. I mean, certainly in the 1930s, we saw it around the world. But uh, it all starts with economics. So what can be done now to to save our world? Another very large large question. You're the kind of man that that answers large questions. Well, I... Nobody would ask me these questions. um, (laughs) Well, I I think that uh, for the first step is for people to understand what the real challenge is. It's very easy for people to fall for demagogic kind of ploys, uh, you know, either blaming Muslims or minority groups or blaming elites uh, or blaming whoever there is to blame. This really has got to be understood as a systemic set of problems, which is why I wrote the book, The System. Um, They're not villains. Everybody is, almost everybody, I mean, there are certain bad players, but there always have been bad players. But everybody is essentially playing the game according to the rules as they understand the game. The problem is the rules have been altered. If we were in American society, for example, 50 years ago, as companies became wealthier, as they did better and better, their workers would all get a larger and larger share of the benefits. Workers would do better as companies did better. That was the unwritten law of the economy. 
And as the economy expanded uh, between 1945 and 1985, uh, most workers uh, saw their wages steadily growing and they, their children did better and better. I mean, that was the American dream. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have lost, uh, starting really around the early 1980s. Companies changed in some very, very profound ways. It was no longer a matter of stakeholder capitalism in which all stakeholders, including workers, benefited when companies did better. It was now shareholder capitalism in which shareholders did better, but nobody else did. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest problems that uh, we have as a company, a great place to work, is when we're explaining why someone should care more about taking care of their people, their workers, their employees, uh, and tying that to um, the business imperative. You know, showing that you know those who actually take care of their employees are going to uh, succeed and do do better both in the market and, and just making money. Wh- what do you? tell people, if you're talking with, say, a business leader or CEO, and they're curious about, you know, what they should be doing, how, what they should be focusing on when it ter- uh, in terms of, you know, working and, you know, succeeding in, in the system that we have, what part of those conversations do you ever include talking about making sure that they're focusing on their people? In my conversations with CEOs over the years, um, I find that they are very, very quick to use all of the correct language and correct phraseology. My, my people, my workers are the most important things. I could not run my company and make a profit if I didn't have totally committed workers, if I didn't treat them well, all of that stuff. Uh, but it's verbiage. When it comes right down to it, companies are still focused on shrinking their payrolls or controlling payroll costs. Payrolls are about uh, almost 70% of the costs of most businesses. And so the easiest thing to do to show increases in profits is to cut jobs, cut payrolls, outsource, substitute automation or technology for workers. And, uh, and basically, it's hard to do that and make workers feel that they are valued mm-hmm. and trusted and that they are part of a, a a common goal. It's a it's a very it's tricky. It may be impossible. Mm. This summit that you're here for today uh, is filled with lots of leaders who have already accepted the mission and, uh, of of achieving that uh, because they know that trust is the basis of creating a great workplace. And so when we talk with a lot of the folks uh, who attend our summit every year, they always say that they feel inspired to see that there's actually. Uh, that there are actually business leaders who are walking the talk. What do you think is uh, the biggest thing standing in the way today for business and leaders within business uh, who are not walking the talk or at least don't understand that trust is, is the most important thing to build a foundation for? Um, I think the stock market. The demands of the market for quarterly performance makes it very difficult for even business leaders who know what the right thing to do is to do it because they have got to, they've got stock analysts breathing down their necks. They have to do things that they might not otherwise think are in the long-term interest of the company or all of the stakeholders, but they feel like they've got to satisfy the analysts. 
so you know the the, the research, there's a research, research report that Great Place to Work just came out with a few, weeks, a few weeks ago in which we talk about how companies can weather the storm during a recession or better than others when they do focus on culture and focus on their people. Does that sound like something that would be true from any research that you've seen looking uh, you know through the markets and the um, cyclical uh, nature of markets? Uh, quite honestly, Christopher, I'd like to believe that it was true. Um, and I've looked for that research mm-hmm. justification mm-hmm. for years and years and years. That was the case between, as I suggested earlier, between uh, the end of the Second World War and the early 1980s. Uh, but since then, when markets are going down, when the economy is shrinking, uh, companies, they may do everything they can do, and I think this is fair to say, to keep their core workers but they will cut as fast as they can in terms of payrolls. They will start with their contractors and uh, their outsourced workers. They certainly will cut their supply chains if they have to. Then they will start cutting if they have to. They will start cutting their payrolls. And I can't blame them. This is not a matter of vilifying anybody. This is a matter of just being very, very clear and practical about what it is that companies feel they have to do in order to maintain their profits or minimize their losses in periods of uh, economic decline or or periods where there is a a recession coming. I mean, it looks like we're facing a recession right right now. I think that's reasonable. Mm -hmm. And so we'll we'll know a, a lot more. This recession that we are just about to see, if it is a recession, um, is probably going to be quite different from the Great Recession of the 2008, 2009. That was a a demand-side recession because people got scared. They didn't have the money. Everybody started to because they were worried that they would not have money, would not have jobs, mm-hmm. a classic kind of recession. This recession, if we do have a recession now because of the coronavirus and related structural problems, is going to be much harder to deal with because it is less susceptible to the solution of fiscal and monetary policy. Hmm. As somebody who is constantly around young people uh, and educating them, what do you think is the most hopeful thing about the youngest generation of adults, voting adults, voting age adults? First of all, they're much better informed. Uh, I've been teaching for 40 years, and I have a fairly good comparative sense of where the previous generation of students was versus this generation mm-hmm. of students. Uh, they're better informed. Uh, they're more committed to seeing the world a better place. Um, They're more internationally oriented. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are more motivated. Uh, uh, Ten years ago, they were mostly motivated by money. Uh, They're less motivated by money now. They do have student loans, and they have student loan debt, and they're worried about that. But they are more motivated by uh, desire to fix what is broken in the system, in the world. This podcast is brought to you by DHL Express, the global market leader in international express delivery. Recognized globally on Great Place to Work's World's Best Workplaces list, DHL Express makes a positive contribution to the world by connecting people and enabling global trade, while being committed to responsible business practices, purposeful environmental activities, and corporate citizenship. Learn more at DHL.com. Why is that focus on money changed, do you, do you think? 
I think it's because they, um, they've seen that their older siblings or even their parents have not found that money alone has made their lives better. In fact, if, if anything, a singular focus on money has made their lives worse. Um, if you're not doing something you like and you care about, um, if you're not in a job that uh, gives you a lot of satisfaction in many ways other than monetary, you're going to be spending your life in a very unhappy way. Mm-hmm. And uh, for some reason, and I am not enough of a sociologist to understand exactly why, but today's students seem to have got that in ways that uh, the previous generation did not. I also see that there's far less activism being done by the younger generation in the way that it has, you know, over the past 40 years, 50 years. And there is social activism through social media, obviously, and fundraising, which is a good platform for it. But beyond the technology aspect of it, why do you think there's less activism these days? I think that young people today um, may be more cynical about activism per se, if it's defined as getting out on the streets and making a ruckus. Here again, they may have seen that their parents or their older sibs uh, tried it and it didn't go very far. But uh, I am struck over and over again by young people today using, as you said, social media or making films or videos uh, are getting involved in a whole range of ways of communicating and connecting up with others. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that the net result may be much more solid and durable than the kind of uh, demonstrations we had even 20 years ago. Hmm. The past year has been kind of a roller coaster uh, when you look at you know this beginning part of the election cycle um, with Democratic primaries, et cetera, but also looking at what's been going on with Trump and how it feels that today he can get away with whatever he wants to because he's not being held accountable for anything. Uh, what has been the one day that made you the most mad over the past year? <laughs> I've been mad for the last uh, three years. The last three years, right. Uh, but the one, that, the, the one day that just you feel like your head was going to explode. Well, I suppose it was uh, when the Mueller report mm. uh, was distorted by the attorney general. Because that, to me, is not only a violation of his responsibility, but it means the American public is not getting the information that the public in a democracy needs. Uh, my deeper concern, and again, I... You know, we can talk about Donald Trump, and sure. I don't want anybody who's listening to this to think that this is a partisan broadcast because no, I'm really, it's not. Uh, it's not. It's a business podcast. Um, but um, what what I am concerned about most is democracy, and um, as Louis Brandeis, Louis Brandeis, the great jurist, said toward the end of the what was called the, and I think we all now know it as the first time that America had a huge concentration of income and wealth and at the top that corrupted the entire system. Uh, Louis Brandeis said, we can have great wealth in the hands of a few, or we can have a democracy, but we can't have both. Mm, And uh, in this second gilded age that we are now in, Mm -hmm. of which I think Donald Trump is a symptom, a consequence rather than the source and reason for Democracy is being sacrificed in a very, very big way. Uh, It's not just because of big money in politics. It's also because of the ways in which 
uh, big money is disregarding and disrespecting democratic institutions. Mm. When we're looking at and, and dissecting all of these economic plans and uh, pitches for Medicare for, for all or healthcare for all, what of the things that have been uh, presented so far uh, as part of these campaigns, which of them look like they're actually um, doable, that we can actually make it happen? Well, I think any of them are doable. I mean, if you had asked me uh, before 2016 and Bernie Sanders' campaign whether Medicare for All was even remotely possible, I would say no. But the polls show that right now 60 to 70 percent of Americans actually would like Medicare for All. Sure. Public opinion on these issues is volatile. On health care, it is clearly going in one direction, and that is toward uh, public understanding that uh, we have the most inefficient and costly healthcare system in the world, and we also have the worst health outcomes of any advanced country. Uh, you put those two together, and people obviously, if they think about it at all, are going to say, well, we've got to do something quite bold. Mm -hmm. Medicare for all is, I think, the next thing we need to do. How we get there from the Affordable Care Act is not all that clear. I could spend a lot of time right now and have a lot of people's eyes and ears glaze over, uh, but I think that's our challenge. When we are talking with business leaders about some of the biggest problems they're seeing uh, when it comes to uh, staffing and recruiting uh, and finding enough people to fill all these different diverse uh, buckets, um, looking at diversity and inclusion, we often hear that there's not enough talent from those different demographics in their particular industry. And so when you're sort of looking at the, the population in the U.S. and looking at education and whatnot, why do you think certain industries are making up that excuse that there's the talent's not there? Or do you, or do you not agree with that? I don't, I don't agree with that. I, I see, and I, this is not just at Berkeley and Harvard and Brandeis right. and other places I've taught. This is because I, you know, I go around, I'm, I visit and I give lectures at various places around the country. I see an extraordinarily talented generation. I see a lot of talented young people who can't afford college to begin with, and they are very, very talented. I don't think there's any shortage of talent. I think there's a shortage of systems for getting those people situated in exactly where they ought to be situated in our corporate culture. I think there are very outmoded ways of recruiting, very outmoded ways of thinking about placement, mm -hmm. and uh, a very backwards system of uh, workplace training. Mm -hmm. Over the course of your very long career, you've had an opportunity to work with many different presidents. In that time, can you think of the one day of your working life that you could recall was the best day at work for you? I've had a lot of good days. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe the best day was in 1995 when, although everybody said to me it was impossible, there was no way to raise the minimum wage. Uh, the Republicans were against it. They had control over both the House and the Senate. Bill Clinton, although he was for it, didn't want to put very much of his political capital behind it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I worked very, very hard. And we did get the first raise in minimum wage in many, many years. Mm -hmm. And coming back to the Labor Department after getting that vote yep. and having uh, thousands of Labor Department employees waiting for me and cheering <laughs> and knowing that... Um, 
something in the order of 50 million people just got a raise. Uh, that was a pretty good feeling. I was one of them. <laughs> I was working as a stock boy in a grocery store. It was my senior year of high school. And I, rem- I remember when that happened. Well, I remember you working there, and I was <laughs> very pleased to get you a minimum wage well, th- increase, too. Thank you. Um, and the rest of America thanks you, too. The, uh, the time that you spent with the Clintons, um, you know, working as Secretary of Labor, and, of course, this uh, um, role as being an advisor to President Obama, those two periods of, uh, of leadership, um, what was the most inspiring thing that you saw both of them do that you felt was creating this wave of change across the U.S., both socially and politically? You know, one thing that I can think of is just when, when Obama was elected president, I, you know, I, I met with Valerie Jarrett yesterday, and I told her about how I had attended the first Obama inauguration and how there was just this uh, swelling of, of emotion in Washington, D.C., and there was just this happiness in the air. They're both inspiring leaders, but for very, in different ways and for different reasons. Personally, how do they inspire you? Well, Bill Clinton, I think, was inspiring because he was the first of a new generation. You know, he was in his early 40s. We hadn't had a president in his early 40s for, you know, since John F. Kennedy. And uh, he and Hillary at that time uh, did represent a passing of the torch to a new generation. Uh, Very similar to the way it uh, it felt in 1960-61 when John F. Kennedy Mm -hmm. became president. Barack Obama, I think the sense of inspiration came from the fact that he was a black man. Uh, It had always seemed to me that it was impossible for a black man to be elected president, at least in my lifetime. The racism and the hatefulness was so entrenched the bigotry was so thick that there was no way uh, you could elect a black man or a black woman. And still a lot of America feels the same way about having a gay president, too. Or having a woman president. Right, or that. Um, And um, yet, there he was. Barack Obama was elected. I remember I was in Chicago uh, the morning after the election returns came in. He was there, um, and he came into this room, and there were about uh, eight of us waiting for him. He went around, and he shook each of our hands, and everybody congratulated him. It came to my turn, and I was prepared to say, you know, congratulations, Mr. President-elect, or something mm-hmm. official-sounding. Right. And I just broke down in tears because it was such an emotional, powerful moment. It just seemed that the nation had done something uh, that I thought the nation was incapable of achieving. Mm-hmm. It was a very, yeah, very emotional moment for everybody, I think. You're about to go on the main stage uh, here at our summit, and I was hoping that you could give us a bit of a sneak preview about what you're going to be discussing. I'll be directing our, our listeners to go to our website where they'll be able to later find video of your, of your speech. Well, I'm going to be talking about frontline workers, uh, people who are almost invisible in most companies, hourly workers, They are on the front lines in the sense that they're the ones who are dealing directly with consumers and also dealing with machinery or technology. Uh, They're often thought to be very fungible by companies, you know, the replaceable. Uh, But they are sources of enormous value. And I will talk about them. They're they're the ones who, for the last 40 years, have not had a wage increase. 
and they're the ones who most of them do not have college educations. Uh, they're the ones who are politically volatile and angry. Um, I'm not going to get into politics, but yeah. maybe I will if the mood strikes me. <laughs> I hope you do. <laughs> I know I find you to be very, a very inspiring speaker. And as I told you earlier, you're very active on social media and have a great Facebook page with lots of wonderful videos that are informative, but also entertaining too. So thank you, Chris. And I appreciate you as a, as a inspirational educator and leader and that you really explain a uh, very complex uh, subjects in a very clear way that helps the rest of us understand them. So, well, I really do think that's important. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, if the public doesn't understand something, it's impossible to be an effective um, citizen mm -hmm. in a democracy. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you, and good luck with the speech. Thank you. All right. You've been listening to Better by Great Place to Work. The producers are Lizelle Festejo and Katie Van Geffen. Audio and video production is by Resonate Recordings. Better is generously sponsored by DHL Express, the global market leader in international express delivery. Tell us about your great workplace experience by finding us on social media. We can be reached on Facebook and LinkedIn at Great Place to Work and on Twitter and Instagram at GPTW underscore US. Also tell your friends about Better, which can be found wherever you download your favorite podcasts.